I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A new book, the debut of writer Searing Yangsam Lama, will be published this week. It's called We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies. It's a sweeping novel that brings us the lives of Lamo and her sister Tenki. They traverse the Himalayas as China invades Tibet in 1959. Lamo is haunted by the loss of her homeland and her mother, the village oracle. They try to rebuild their life uh, in uh, Nepal. And as the book moves on, we're taken to Toronto's uh, Parkdale neighborhood years later as Tenki lives with Lamo's daughter, Dolma. Throughout the book, Searing, who joins me now, examines the connection with home and how uh, the trauma of its loss can affect future generations. She looks at survival, not who as much as why. I'll ask her about what it was like to write the book and how Searing Lama was born and raised in Nepal, where her family uh, settled after fleeing Tibet in the early 1960s. She has lived in Vancouver, Toronto, and New York City. She has a BA in Creative Writing and International Relations from the University of British Columbia and an MFA from Columbia University. She is a lifelong activist and and serves as a storytelling advisor for Greenpeace International. She will be appearing as part of Insight, put on by our friends at the uh, Vancouver Writers' Fest this Wednesday, the 18th of May at 7 p.m. at the Vancouver Public Library's Central Branch. The event is in person and online. Visit writersfest.bc.ca for more information. This new book is published by McClelland and Stewart. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online Program, Sering Yangsum Lama. Ms. Lama, good morning. Morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, This book is described as reaching across time and place. Now, as I'm reading the book, um, I don't think it's it's simply research on your part that that, um, evokes a lot of what happens in the book or a lot of the feeling in the book. Um, There's such a connection between you and the past and and one's ancestors. I mean, one clearly feels that as they're reading the book. Is is that much of a stretch on my part that that this connection is more than just, say, um, research that one does in terms of of talking to people or or, uh, reading stuff from a book? Yeah, it does come from a a deeper and more personal space for me. Um, My grandparents were nomads uh, Mm -hmm. in western Tibet, and uh, they fled along with my parents, who were just children at the time. And I grew up in Nepal, in the the diaspora, in the exile community there Mm -hmm. of Tibetans, um, and and eventually uh, immigrated to Canada. And so for me, like, my whole life has been sort of defined by this, historical moment in which, you know, something that has been continuous for thousands of years uh, in, you know, with my ancestors was disrupted and uh, completely turned upside down. And, and now that I'm on the other side of this catastrophe, looking back, I can sort of think, you know, what happened? <laughs> and how, what happened to us? And how did we survive? And there's so much that we don't discuss um, mm-hmm. in, in my community, like a lot of communities that have gone through... Uh, trauma. Um, and so it really began out of this personal desire to understand this time and to understand these three generations and what they've experienced. And I think that's the thing that comes through in the book that, that a lot of us don't understand or that a lot of us don't talk about, is that um, these things affect future generations um, uh, directly and indirectly, don't they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's understandable that once you have been through something, you don't want to talk about it because it's, you know, painful. I realized, I learned actually um, 
about a few years ago that my great uncle had been a political prisoner in Tibet for like several decades that nobody in my family had mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are all these things that have been um, buried, but the, the silences do have a presence as well. And I can see the ways in which all of us have been affected by um, this moment and uh, we might not yet process it or we might not be able to articulate it, but, but it's always there within us. And then I, it's important to also say that actually, just like in, in Canada, you know, the, the, the history of settler colonialism is mm-hmm. an ongoing one. Yeah. It's an ongoing situation in Tibet. And for, you know, the, the diaspora, it's an ongoing situation because most of Tibetans who live in India and Nepal are stateless and don't have citizenship to any country in the world. And all Tibetans in exile, um, I think I could speak generally, we're all looking to that promise of return someday. So this is very much a, a live and ongoing um, story for us, and you know, I think uh, for us, a lot of the attention is paid on the sort of national narrative sure. of this nation state that's been lost and its desire to return and to regain it. But there's all these other stories of personal uh, narratives on the personal level, how we're impacted by this. That I think I was really interested in examining, and that happens in a space of literature. I think it happens in a space of art. It's not on in just in a political uh, in the political discourse. Yeah. Um, so that's what I was interested in. Yeah, these are these are fascinating, rich characters that, that you have in your book here: Lamo, uh, Tenki, and, and later Doma. Um, the the um, the promise of return that you just spoke about. I mean, the, the connection to the land itself. Um, it's it's such a part of each of their identities, and in different ways. Um, the um, some someone early in the book says that. Um, um, they're tied to the land, and and the the, the people themselves are, are tied to. The, I, I butchered that line, unfortunately, but but it, <laughs> it, 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 vice versa, you know, it works. Um, mm. That, that it, it it's such a connection. Um, I, I don't know where where to start for people listening to us who, who probably haven't picked up the book. Um, how would you describe that sort of relationship? Uh, this this uh, part of their idea, each of these characters' identities. Right. So I think, I mean, one thing that's important to say is just like the the extreme beauty of Tibet. Um, you know, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. Uh-huh. And it is literally lifted above the earth. It's a, it's a, all of historical Tibet is a plateau. Um, and so there is a sense in which Tibetans really feel deep love and connection with the land, purely on an aesthetic level. Mm. But it goes beyond that because we believe that the land is, uh, inhabited by gods and spirits, and this belief goes way back before even Buddhism arrived 1,200 years ago. There, there are these animist traditions in which Tibetans think that there are gods in rivers, lakes, mountains, and the oracular tradition in Tibet, which is you know an ancient one, just like in, in ancient Greece, um, is is the, the pathway for people to call these gods and to hear them through a human vessel. And so in my book, uh, a, a village oracle, a female village oracle, is the center of this historical moment. Mm-hmm. And she leads her village into exile. And that's also a really ancient tradition that I don't think people know about, that there are ways in which women have been leaders in their local communities for hundreds, if not thousands of years, to heal, guide, and to mediate uh, for their communities. And so I'm 
I'm here talking about not just the loss of land mm -hmm. in this sort of a colonial, um, you know, nation-state conceptual framework, but land as what it means to a people. And for Tibetans who have been um, nomads or farmers in this place for thousands of years, the dispossession from that land, whether it's being out in exile and, and unable to return, or being in Tibet and still being unable to move freely within Tibet, that dispossession goes to a spiritual level. It goes to a level that cannot be understood or measured through, um, you know, policy. Um, and that's what this book is really interested in examining. Yeah. And, and so the, the, you mentioned um, uh, the oracle, or, or an oracle, um, uh, which is uh, Lamo Ntenke's mother. Um, she's such a fascinating character in, in that um, there's so much that's um, unsaid as there is said from her. Um, would you tell us about the, 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 the fleeing from Tibet after the Chinese invasion in 1915? What, what sort of journey was it like for her and for her daughters? It was an incredibly difficult journey. Um, you know, there were tens of thousands of them who, who fled, and most of them left after His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, had to leave as well because mm -hmm. his life was threatened. And there were many Tibetans who were willing to die and were circling his his home in, in Lhasa um, while the Chinese uh, soldiers neared. And so for Tibetans who left, you know, many of them did not think that they were going to leave forever. I think this is the, the feeling that one gets from watching what's happening in Ukraine, too. Right. Like, yeah. there's a sense in which we'll be back as soon as peace is reinstated. You yeah. know, this yeah. is not our war. This is the war of people that are choosing to come and invade for for some reason, and things will somehow be reinstated, and we will return. And that's what the characters in my story believe, and that's what many Tibetans believed when they left. Um, and many of them buried their things underground, you know, the, the, because they couldn't carry it over the Himalayas, which is obviously <laughs> the tallest mountains in the yeah, world, yeah. you know, and, uh, and you're, you're walking over them with cloth boots. Um, and uh, so there was a sense in which this was a temporary refuge, but slowly over time, the characters in my story begin to realize that this is not a temporary situation, um, not at least in the way that they had understood. Um, and then for the oracle herself, you know, she is, she, so the Dalai Lama also was led uh, into exile by an oracle, the state oracle, mm -hmm. um, and he divined the path uh, uh, that would lead uh, the Dalai Lama into exile. And I wanted to recast that story with a woman at the center and with ordinary Tibetans at the center. Um, and so I was thinking of this oracle also in that sense. And additionally, uh, in times of crisis, oracles are, you know, especially important yeah. and, you know, rich uh, and significant because we don't know what's coming next. And so we, we look to um, an otherworldly or a, you know, a, a, a greater wisdom to guide us, and uh, that happened in Tibet, and I think that continues to be a, a, a ancient human story. There's a moment in the book where um, uh, Lamo, in 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 uh, the, the refugee camp in, in Nepal, um, asks why um, certain people survived and why others don't, and I, I found what she she had to say incredibly profound in that um, the people that did survive weren't necessarily the strongest or, say, the smartest or the ones who really wanted to live. Um, 
What does she realize at that moment in terms of, of, of what fate means and what survival means? I, I think there's, um, you know, this is really gets down to something that I'm deeply interested in, which is that, you know, we, we don't often have control over our fates and we don't, uh, we can't say like, you know, we deserve more than other people or they deserve less than us. And, in fact, a lot of this feels like we are just uh, beholden to the, the winds of fate or to history. And, you know, with a character like Tanky as well, she's somebody that's close to my heart because she's quite brilliant and she's, like, really seen as a promise of the camp because mm-hmm. she shows that kind of, like, ability to study from an early stage. But, you know, she's not set up to succeed because, you know, although she has all this promise, she has almost the hardest life because she cannot fulfill her promise um, because of her the way the, the place she's born, her poverty, her her difficulty in, uh, in in coming to Canada, and her difficulty in being taken seriously here. Um, and so, uh, to me, this is really about um, structural inequality and, uh, and, and uh, things that you know can go beyond. Um, sort of this convenient story that we tell ourselves in the West, at least, that this is a meritocratic world, that mm-hmm. if you're good and you work hard, you will succeed. And I think that sometimes even narratives of, of immigrants, um, when they're popular, they fit into that model. Like if you're really good and you work hard and you assimilate, you will succeed in Canada and yeah. you'll be rewarded. Yeah. Well, but there are many, many millions, in fact, tens of millions of refugees around the world right now who are just as worthy as anybody else and who do not get a chance. And that's yeah. what I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so so the, the the book uh, t- tells the story of um, them uh, uh, leaving Tibet, going to Nepal, and then it, it moves along 50 years later. Um, I didn't get uh, far into that part of the book. So so what can you tell us without say giving <laughs> giving it away? <laughs> um, what happens when we see them 50 years later? When we see some of our characters 50 years later? Well, I think I think we see that the, the past is always there, um, and that um, the past resonates within the characters in ways that they might not even understand themselves. Um, so the ways in which the the, the statue, the nameless saint statue, mm-hmm. reappears throughout the novel and changes hands throughout the novel in ways that are mysterious and the ways that are surprising. I really want to point out that not everything can be understood at first glance by these characters, and that there is some some greater beauty and mystery that uh, is is present even in the lives of you know refugees. That you know from the outside we might look at them as like oh you know they're just poor refugees, but sure. actually there's incredible beauty and art and spirituality in their lives, and that gives them meaning just as much as anybody else. Mm. Um, and, and I think there's going, you know, the book is really about um, home, like where do people belong. And uh, the ending, I think, which I arrived at after, uh, a, you know, a, a request to rewrite by my editors, which I think was right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think I finally arrived at what I believe to be the truth. Um, and it's not an easy answer, and it's not a comfortable answer, but I think it is, um, I, I, I think it's the most honest place that I could arrive um, in, in this moment. 
What um, what was it like writing this book? I mean, um, writing is a very solitary process, and so you, you just talked about um, being asked to rewrite a, a part of the book by your editor. Um, when you're writing, um, and, and you're struck by inspiration at, at various points, I'm assuming, um, what is that like? I mean, could you explain what the, those moments of creativity are like for people like us who don't who don't write, say? Um, I think the closest thing I could say is like it. It feels like I'm, you know, often this happens where I'm just like walking and thinking, and nothing's happening. Nothing's coming to me for sure. a long time, and then suddenly I'll be struck by an image, or I'll be struck by a line, and I don't know where that comes from, um, and I I don't question it, and when it comes, I'm, I'm very clear that it's right. Um, and so there's a lot of tilling the soil, a lot of waiting, trying to hear my characters, trying to understand who they really, really are. And that, I think that is why it took me 10 years to write this book, is because I had to deal with my own resistance to really going deep into these characters and really trying to understand them. And um, and I also had to be patient and and. Uh, in a sense, it, it feels like a form of prayer as well because you work and you work and then you hope for something. And then if it happens, hopefully it'll carry you to the next question, to the next mystery that you have to solve for yourself. But a lot of it is just waiting and working and trying to figure it out. Did you learn something about yourself in the 10 years that it takes to, to, to write a book like this? I mean, do you understand your, your past a little bit better maybe? I think so. Um, you know, everything in the book comes from me, so uh, a lot of the characters' relationships are things that I'm working through. Like, for instance, I mentioned Tinky and her her life being caught between promise and um, the, the, the harsh fate that she's been dealt. Well, I had, you know, a lot of promise as a young kid, and I was sort of seen by my family as being, you know, really academically uh, special or whatever. Um, and yet I didn't have all these challenges that Tanky had faced, but I have seen my relatives who have promised not reach um, what I think they sh- should have been able to reach, you know, in terms of um, their studies and their, uh, in terms of their career. So, you know, Tanky's character was a way for me to grapple with this, and I didn't even realize that until recently when somebody pointed that out to me, like somebody who knows me well. They're like, yeah. oh, this feels like this is where you are dealing with that question. And I didn't even think about it that way. So a lot of this is subconscious. And now I can see, oh, these are the ethical questions that I was interested in. And I dealt with it through these characters and their fates. Yeah, it's something, isn't it? I mean, you you alluded to this a moment ago, where um, you can only do some of this stuff through fiction, can't you? I mean, other forms of writing, it it may work. You may be able to pull it off as a writer. But but in fiction, there's a... um, I don't know, you, you do reach something a little bit better, don't you? Yeah, I think fiction is a really, I mean, I've always loved fiction, and I think it's because it's a really active, imaginative sort of experience. Um, the reader and the writer both get to enter into other beings' consciousnesses and their bodies and their histories and their memories and everything, which is a very difficult thing to achieve in any other art form. Like, I get to literally be other people. You know, or like the closest approximation of other people that the writer is able to create and that I as a reader am able to conjure as well. So, you know, any book that you receive uh, in a bookstore or wherever is an incomplete work. And 
the reader has to fill in the rest. And it's a matter of the reader's, I guess, state of receptivity or their willingness to imagine and enter into other beings' consciousnesses uh, that if that they're, they're there and the writer is doing the job, then a certain kind of almost magic can, up, can happen because these are just literally words on a page and yet we get to live in another world. We get to uh, live inside that mind. And so I think that that's when it's working really well and that's what inspires me to write. Uh, it's, a, it's like a form of magic. And, and what is it like for you when, when you spend all this time with, with these characters. Um, I guess you have to like them, don't you? I mean, they are special people that, that um, you're writing about. Um, um, are there times where they, they, they can frustrate you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, there, there were many years where I didn't understand who they were, and I, I didn't know what to do with them. And I think rather than like, I, I have to feel like I have to have tenderness toward them mm, um, yeah, I yeah. don't have to agree with what they do right, right. but I have to I have to try to understand their humanity and I never want to be a writer who has contempt for her characters like I, I, the, the point of all of this is for me greater empathy and greater understanding ultimately um, and so my my characters aren't always doing things that you know one might you know agree with from like the mm-hmm. sort of uh, well, sure, uh, yeah. you know, distance, you know, but yeah. like who, who does, you know, who acts in a way that we always agree with. But that's not interesting to me. I'm interested in trying to understand why they are the way they are um, and what makes them tick. Um, the story has, has, has a, a few narrators, um, but you tell the story in, in, in the first person. Was, was that always your plan? No, it wasn't. It, it was third person. Um, uh, close narration, but third still uh-huh. uh, for many years. And then I had a agent um, tell me that they felt like they couldn't access the characters. And I thought about it. I think part of it was because my characters were not, you know, Western characters. They were in Nepal. So part of that is cultural. Um, but then I, you know, I myself knew that I had been at a distance my characters so I decided to rewrite the whole thing in first person and it brought me closer to them I also had the whole thing in past tense and I rewrote it all in present tense I mean the book has been through many 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 versions yeah it it it, it, there's something um I'm always this is because I don't read much fiction I'm I'm always suspicious when it's a first person narrative because I'm always wondering if they're telling me the truth but I have to say, when I'm reading the book, I, I find these characters extremely likable, and and um, I find them just fascinating in terms. And, and I do feel a connection to them that I, I I don't think I would have otherwise had if if it was someone else telling me the story. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. I, I just I, I just found them just engaging and and, and remarkable people. A lot of them. Um, I noticed that the, the cover in Canada is different uh, than it is in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a reason for that, or is that is, is the publisher's choice? Or Yeah, it's just the publisher's choice. I think the McClellan story in Canada was going for a different vibe, um, and the U.S. one is going for a different vibe. You know, I, I, I really love both uh, uh, covers. I, I actually presented my uh, publisher with a Google Doc with all of my requests uh-huh. <laughs> and all of my dopes. Like, I really didn't want 
prayer flags. I didn't want a monk. Yeah. I didn't <laughs> want yaks. I didn't want mountains. Like I just didn't want all of the typical imagery or iconography that's associated with Tibet. And I also definitely didn't want like a Asian woman, you know, like with a sort of like a seductive stare at the reader. Like I, you know, I I wanted something that felt like it was. So the, the you know the books both of them have these fabrics, these textures, and uh, these are uh, ways. This is something that that Tibetan women do where we mix fabrics and textures, both like modern and traditional uh-huh. in our clothing. And I, I felt that that was a beautiful way to uh, capture the, the sort of modern experience of being a Tibetan, which is diaspora and also tradition. Uh, and, uh, you know, referencing the body, uh, which because this book is really about uh, sort of the embodied experience. Of, of being a refugee and of being a, a colonial subject, um, what that does to each of us at, at an individual level, um, not the theoretical or romantic ideas of Tibet or of exile. Yeah, I, I like both covers too, but the the the, the, uh, the version for for Canadian readers, I think, is is is, is a very special one. Um, it's exquisite. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations on this book. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today, and 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 all the best with it. Thank you so much, Joseph. I really appreciate this. The event this Wednesday night, the 18th of May, is at 7 p.m. at the Vancouver Public Library Central Branch. Visit writersfest.bc.ca for more information. The book is called. We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies. It's published by McClelland and Stewart. It's author Searing Yangsam Lama. Join me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.